Hello and welcome to Vibrant Lives Podcast, a podcast dedicated to your health and well-being, featuring interviews with experts about nutrition, physical and mental health, and my five-minute food fact series, short episodes where I discuss nutrition-related topics. I'm Amanda Hayes, your host. I'm a former lawyer turned nutritionist, and I'm deeply curious about learning how to live a healthy, active, and fulfilling life, which I would call a vibrant life, and sharing what I learn with you here on this podcast. Before I introduce today's guest, please note that any information or advice provided in Vibrant Lives podcast is not intended to be used to treat, cure, or prevent injuries, disease, or medical conditions. And it's never a substitute for advice from your own health professionals. Today, it is an absolute honour for me to be here with Dr. Tessa Opie because she does so much good work with our teenagers and young adults. She is the founder and director of In Your Skin, an organisation that provides relationship and sexuality education. She's an advocate for healthy and consenting relationships. She's worked as an educator across government, not-for-profit and private sectors and has ongoing experience as a guest lecturer at various universities. Tessa's approach is sex-positive, evidence-based and harm reduction focus. It requires participants to actively consider their relationship values, attitudes and expectations in a social climate that feeds us with often misleading messages about sex and relationships. And as we know, that's the environment that a lot of our young people are growing up in. Tess is a welcome speaker at many schools across Australia, where she presents to students and also to parents. As parents, it's obviously really important for us to understand the impact of media, including online pornography, on our children's attitudes and expectations in relation to sexual activity. Tess will also provide us with some tips on what we can do as parents, caregivers and role models to positively encourage our young people to develop healthy and realistic expectations and attitudes around sex and sexuality. So this is a really important and informative episode and I do hope that you enjoy it and get some useful information from it. Today I'm here with Dr. Tess Opie. Hi, Tess. Hi. Uh, Tess, it'd be great to get to know a little bit about you, so I like to start with some quick-fire questions, a la um, Norman Swan and Tegan Taylor on <laughs> CoronaCast. So, Tess, where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Adelaide, so Adelaide. I was born here, raised here, and then spent quite a lot of time overseas and then came back and settled here. Yeah, that's a, that's a very common story for people from Adelaide, to leave for a while and then come back. That's what, what I did as well. And Tess, your favourite form of exercise? Swimming. Swimming. In fact, we were talking about that before. It's swimming season here now. The sun is out and the pools are open. And Tess, your go-to meal for dinner? Oh, it would have to be um, it would have to be a bowl of pasta. Pasta. What are you reading right now, Tess? I have only days ago finished the last page of a book called Maybe the Horse Will Talk. Oh yes, I've read that. Yeah, yeah it's I good, really isn't it? it? Yeah. In fact, Elliot Perlman, the author, wrote one of my all-time favourite books called The Street Sweeper. I thoroughly recommend it. It's a it's a great epic set in New York. It's fantastic. And apparently, he also wrote um, um, Seven Shades of Ambiguity or Seven yes, Types he, of Ambiguity. He did. Yeah. 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 He's a very clever guy. And Tess, what are you enjoying listening to at the moment? It could be audio book, podcast. 
That's a good question. I think it's probably a podcast and it's probably Making Sense with Sam Harris. Okay, great. He has a, um, an incredibly diverse array of guests. Um, yeah, and I always really enjoy the different perspectives. Okay, great. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And test your favourite or dream holiday destinations within Australia and outside Australia. Well, on Saturday, we just flew in from Port Douglas. Oh. So, look, I'll say that because we just had a beautiful week in the sunshine. Oh, it is so gorgeous there, isn't it? Yeah, we it really it. is. And it's a great family destination. And we were all very happy to be there together and to be getting a huge dose of vitamin D. Yep. Um, and I think outside of Australia is a tough question, but quite possibly Istanbul in, in Turkey. Oh, wow. Yeah. Amazing. So given many people in my audience are raising children and teens... We, we most of us know that it's important to have conversations with our teens about sex, sexual health and consent. And let's face it, that is often a difficult and awkward conversation to have. And sometimes as parents, we're at a bit of a loss, I think, to know even where to start. And in addition to that, the landscape's changed since we were teenagers ourselves and what might have been relevant then can be a bit outdated now. So Tess, you have come to our rescue. You founded In Your Skin, where you advocate for healthy and consenting relationships, and your approach is sex-positive, evidence-based, and harm reduction focus. So you deliver deliver workshops to numerous schools and other organisations around Australia, including AFL football clubs, uh, and I dare say they could benefit from your knowledge. So Tess, what were your reasons for setting up In Your Skin? I think there are a few reasons. Um, I had one biological child at the time, and I'm also a stepmother um, of two stepchildren who are now 22 and 17. And we live in quite, I guess, a close-knit community. And we're heavily involved in all the different sporting clubs there and fundraisers, committees. Um, And I remember at the time there was a song that had been released called Blurred Lines. um, And there was quite a confronting video clip that went with that. Um, which not only, I guess, had, you know, full-on nudity that young people could easily access on YouTube, but the the lyrics themselves were about, you know, um, these blurred lines around, I know you want it. Right. And mm-hmm. talking about, I guess, um, perhaps ignoring signs that someone was not consenting to whatever mm-hmm. sexual activity. So that was going on, and simultaneously I was hearing some pretty amazing conversations going on amongst young people at some of the sporting clubs, which gave me the impression that we weren't really understanding consent and respectful relationships. And I think I became acutely aware that we are, we're in this sort of, we are still in this hypersexualized culture, mm. and yet we don't have adults who are speaking pragmatically about sexual activity, respectful sexual interactions, consent from a position that doesn't involve sort of some degree of moral panic. Yep. Yeah. Okay. That's really interesting. And obviously we'll delve into that further. Before you founded In Your Skin, what were you doing? Like, what were, Did you have a skill set to lead into this, in other so, words? So, yes, I was working in health promotion. So I started originally in the alcohol and other drug sector, and that was working um, with clients in a therapeutic capacity initially, but then that kind of moved into health promotion more broadly. Mm-hmm. So I was working in the clean needle program, in the education space, um, and then I moved into, I guess, um, broader health promotion around sort of sexual health, but also bloodborne virus prevention. Right. And that was working with really marginalised community groups. So, um, and that included um, going into prisons and running workshops in prisons, 
juvenile justice facilities. Um, and I guess the more that we would talk about sexual health, for example, and barrier protection and, and hepatitis B, etc., um, I was becoming really fascinated at the lack of sexual health literacy yep. and the lack of sexual health knowledge you know, across the community broadly. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of coincided with hearing, you know, some young people having yeah. some pretty bizarre ideas about sex and sexuality and relationships. And so everything sort of pointed in this direction of, well, let's maybe attempt to go out and have some honest, factual conversations about yeah. this. And I guess for you at that time, you know, as a mother, you become more and more aware of those conversations happening, don't you, Absolutely. around you? Because you think, well, that's my children. That's exactly That's right. the world they're in. And so there is so much to, to discuss in this space. And obviously we can't cover everything today, but I thought it would be good to start with sexuality before moving on to sex and consent. So Tess, what's in your opinion a good age to start educating our children about sexuality? I think as young as possible. Yep. And I don't mean having explicit conversations about sexual activity. But what I tend to notice is, you know, parents who are joking a lot about their reception kids having boyfriends or girlfriends. Um, and we have this funny little cultural thing where isn't this cute and they're holding hands and they kiss each other. Um, and then yet, I guess, the, 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 equi- or the corresponding conversation that might be going on at school or kindergarten that's about child protection is about young people developing skills and strategies to talk to a trusted adult if there might be another adult in their life who's perhaps attempting to exploit them. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we have these young people who talk about from my head to my toes, I say what goes and I'm the boss of my body and I'd rather fist bump you than give mm-hmm. you a kiss or a hug and that's all brilliant. But we don't have that same conversation with them in relation to their own peers. And I think right. that's a real absence yeah. of, of important information. And as these young people get older and they get to middle school and senior school, that what was a really strong sense of consent and bodily autonomy tends to erode. Right. I think that we can have conversations about practicing consent in relation to them sharing their pencil case with somebody, their lunch with somebody. I think that, you know, when they're talking about blah, blahs, this so-and-so's boyfriend or girlfriend i think we can have conversations about well you know that you know two two boys can get married two girls can Mm. get married a boy and a girl can get married a lot of people don't want to get married at all yeah and we can talk about the very different types of relationships that are out there but always bringing it back to both people have to be happy in that relationship and both people have to feel safe and the thing that stood out to me there is it doesn't necessarily have to be about sex when you're talking to young children it can be about sharing their pencil case, you know, and things like that, sort of having a sense of uh, autonomy over their own body and and knowing their boundaries. Yes. So how do young people see sexuality compared with a generation or two? Um, What do you think about that? I think young people are more likely, and not all young people, but many young people are more likely to view sexuality as something perhaps more fluid Mm -hmm. and less fixed. I think young people are far more open-minded to expressing and exploring their own sexualities. A hundred percent agree, just as a mother observing my children. Mm. I think they're far more accepting of sexual diversity. Yeah. Um, And I also think that technology has had a huge influence on how some young people might go about expressing and exploring their sexuality as well. Yeah. And I do want to come to technology because that has a massive influence and something that people my age didn't have to deal with as teenagers. Do you think we're doing enough as a society to 
help young people accept or explore their sexuality? Not even slightly. Yeah, I thought you would say that. And I would Mm. say we're counterproductive because we buy them a phone or a tablet or a laptop and then we don't even talk about sexual activity, mutuality, reciprocity, consent, etc. Right. Well, we've got a lot to do. Um, And if if we do improve in that area and we do educate children more about sex and sexuality... How will that benefit society, do you think? Well, oh my gosh, greatly. There'll be so many positive outcomes Mm. to being more open and factual about sexuality. I think that we would have a happier society. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that young people will have an increased sense of sexual agency and self-esteem, which is really important in terms of of a protective factor, um, particularly during adolescence. Um, they would have a greater capacity to be able to either refuse sexual activity Mm -hmm. or negotiate consensual sexual activity. And if we can tick those boxes, we will legitimately be reducing rates of sexual assault and sexual violence. Right, yeah. So it's a really important space to be... Incredibly important. Yeah. And Tess, I'd also like to speak a little bit about gender because I think... It's, it's necessary to talk about it to set the scene so we understand the environment that our young people are growing up in and gender equality is a really important part of that. And I know we can't really do it justice in a short, brief conversation um, in a podcast, but I'd just like to flag it. So what does the research say about gender equality in our teens? What- well, I mean, there's a few things to cover here. I mean, we know that gender inequality is one of the main drivers Mm. of gender-based violence yeah so it has to be an issue that we do tackle with young people if we want to take a meaningful approach to i guess increasing their chances of having respectful relationships but unfortunately we also know that nine out of ten australian teenage girls report not feeling equal to their male counterparts Mm. yeah when i heard tess speak at my girls school that jumped out at me when you said that. I I found that really depressing, to be honest. Um, So what what are some of the reasons, do you think, that that young girls don't feel equal to boys? I mean, it's probably a big question. It's a big question, but and I think it's a really important one, and I'm not going to do it justice with this response. But I think when I hear you ask that question, I guess what jumps out to me are that, you know, even still in 2021, things that are typically seen to be feminine, I think, are still treated as trivial, mm. often frivolous, emotional, lacking substance and, and objectivity. I think that the stay-at-home parenting is performed overwhelmingly by women, which has massive oh, impacts on career absolutely. advancements and superannuation. Mm. I think the pay gap um, in general, but particularly in, in public sport, yeah. um, but also in the corporate sphere. Um, I think that women still to this day have to work twice as hard in many contexts for equal recognition. Um, And I've also written here, you know, the orgasm gap. There are fewer representations of female pleasure. And I think there is an enormous amount of subjugation of women in online pornography. Yeah, yeah, we'll definitely get to that because that's a fascinating area. Wow. Yeah, so many things. I'm almost not sure what to say because uh, where do we start? But can I say, you know, there's one anecdote that I tell sometimes and it's when I was working with some Year 10 students and I told them, I presented that statistic Mm. from Plan International and Our Watch. Nine out of ten female teenage females in Australia don't feel equal to their male counterparts and I asked these female students how they felt about that, how that landed 
what were their thoughts and it was sort of a silent room but there was one female student at the back of the classroom who put her hand up and said I would just love to know who the one in ten is that think we are really yeah oh what a great response I mean it's sad but so sad yeah I know I mean as a parent of daughters you really you just want to give them that sense that they're equal but everywhere out there in society we're kind of telling them they're not absolutely and that's Mm. what they'll say too yeah you know okay well moving on Uh, i'd like to talk about sexual health so according to the national survey of secondary students and sexual health which is conducted i believe every five years by la trobe university um, and it looks at the rates of sexual activities in year 10 11 and 12 students uh, amongst other things and so the latest one, I think, was the data was collected in 2018 and published in 2019. And the rates of sexual activities in that group has increased since the previous survey in 2013. Mm-hmm. So I think as parents, we need to know this and we need to know how to have those important conversations about sexual health with our children. So there's obviously lots of complex issues and factors that influence how our teens feel about sex and sexuality. So Tess, can you let us know in a broad sense that what what are some of the issues and influences that teens face today when it comes to sex and sexuality that people from an older generation did not have to contend with? So what I'm trying to get at here is what kind of environment are they growing up in that we need to understand and learn about? Mm. Look, I think two of the obvious answers there are social media. Mm-hmm. Um, but with that, I think also comes unrealistic ideals around what's considered sexy. Yeah. Um, but I also think online pornography and all the data tells yeah. us that as well. So young people who are exposed to online pornography, particularly young people who are watching it more frequently, they're more likely to be engaging in oral sex and intercourse at younger and younger ages. Yeah. So I think they're the two most obvious answers. We hear a lot about peer pressure and I think that never before in history has there been such a strong sense of peer pressure to be sexually active. Right. And do you think that's partly due to social media and those things? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And and it's almost as though being sexually active these days as a young person validates your sense of worth as a human being. Right. Which also means that young people are engaging in sexual activity often before they're actually ready. Yeah, And not necessarily with someone whom they would like to be sharing themselves with, ideally. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of passive sexual activity that is going on in high schools. um, And that is what we really seek to address Mm -hmm. when we run workshops in schools. You know, putting young people back into the driver's seat and sort of saying, well, you should be far more in control of this and you should really be thinking about how you might want to express and explore this and with who and under what conditions. Like this really is something that needs considered thought, you know, and, and yeah, you should be really in control of, of how that unfolds. Yeah. Gosh. It, I mean, it's, it's interesting because in some ways we've gone backwards because there's so much pressure, as you say, partly because of social media, but in other ways we've come forward because it's not, um, you know, it's not sort of associated with guilt and things like that so much. Or is that not quite true? I don't know. True? I think there still is a lot you of do? that. And I okay. still think there's a lot of slut shaming and I think there's yeah. a lot of regret yep. amongst high school students. And I, I think it's very confusing for them because I think online pornography has also normalised a lot of n- non-normative sex acts. Yeah. Um, and in the absence of 
pragmatic, honest discussions yep. about that, uh, they're feeling really misinformed about what's realistic and reasonable. Yeah, so I think um, on that note, what does it really say about the sexual education that our kids are receiving? I think they're receiving varying degrees of it. Yeah. I guess my concern and my area of focus, particularly when it comes to consultancy work, is how effective is the, is the sex education yeah. that they are receiving? Um, mm. Because most students will say it's not, and they'll yeah. say that it's not representative. It certainly doesn't explore female pleasure. Yeah. They'll say whatever they might be learning, they should be learning two or three years prior. Um, and they do want to be learning skills yeah, to, sure. to be able to manage and navigate and negotiate relationships. Because I think one of the problems is if they're not learning adequately at school and the conversations aren't really going on at home, where do they turn? That's right. And that's to the pornography. That's right. And the data mm. tells us that. And yeah. even students who say who reports saying that they understand that it's a misrepresentation of sex and sexual activity in the real world, these same young people are still reporting that they've used it to find an answer to a question yeah. they had about sex in the absence of any other information source. So what are some of the things they're learning that are perhaps unhelpful? I think there's two parts to that question. I think there's some things that they're learning that are unhelpful, but mm -hmm. I think it's more about what it is that they're not learning through right. online pornography. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a huge degree of violence and aggression yeah. in the freely accessible sites that young people tend to be accessing. Um, and I think that it overrepresents certain sex acts that are not necessarily that popular right. in the real world. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the bigger question is about we don't know what we don't know. And yeah. so if we're not talking about, well, what is it that online porn is not showing us that's mm. so vital to successful, respectful intimacy in the real world, they really don't, they really don't know how, how to kind of identify that. And so we talk a lot about, you know, porn literacy and we talk about the fact that there are, you know, no representations of um, porn performers perhaps using barrier protection yeah. like external condoms. There are mm -hmm. no conversations around contraception. There's no discussion around, well, what are your boundaries? Are there any body parts right. or, or activities that are off limits? Yeah. Um, so there's none of that negotiating. There's none of that checking in with each other. Is this yeah. okay? Can we keep going? Mm. Is, you know, do you feel safe? Does it feel good? Um, you know, there's no sort of compliments or kissing yeah. or fumbling or bumbling or, yeah. you know, spills or yeah. all the sort of stuff that happens that in happens. the real world. If they don't have any representations of that, they don't realise that that's, that's vital yeah. to how it should be unfolding. And I guess, the, I mean, amongst all those, the, all those problems is the way they probably look on, on screen as well. Absolutely. Like these totally unrealistic uh, bodies that have often been adjusted by, you know, plastic surgery. Absolutely. And, mm, and that's yeah. very important too because yeah. we do see really high levels of body but particularly genital dissatisfaction yeah. amongst young people. Gosh, oh gosh, as if they don't have enough to contend with already. That's right. So if we could look at some statistics to get a sense of how all of this is affecting um, our young people when it comes to sexual health uh, and what we know about the sexual health of young people in Australia, could you talk us through a few things like condom use, um, sexually transmitted diseases and, and how's that all playing out for young people in Australia? So condom use has been decreasing for quite some time, and I guess... Is that porn-related, do you think? that they're... I think certainly, yeah. and I think um, many schools aren't doing 
I guess, the old style of education yeah. around getting students to put an external condom onto a plastic penis or banana. <laughs> but we know that's a really worthwhile thing to do because mm. it's skills-based. Of course it is. And it's destigmatizing. And it means that those students will be more likely to perhaps carry a condom on their person. If they have one there, they're more likely to use it. But instead, you know, we're seeing um, increasing rates of of ineffective condom use, so mm-hmm. condoms breaking too right. easily. There might not be education around using water-based lube. They might not have rehearsed ever sort of putting putting one on yeah. themselves or on, on an object. Um, we know that, yes, that 75%, I think it is, of 15 to 24-year-olds who report having sexual intercourse in the last 12 months did so without a condom, so three wow. and four. And Gosh. it's about one in two high school students in years 10 to 12 who, again, reported sexual intercourse in the previous year. One in two did so without a condom. So really high rates. And so we know there's been increases in gonorrhea, there's been increases in, in syphilis, but predominantly we're talking about significant increases in chlamydia among right. 16 to 24-year-olds. And we don't tend to see particularly high levels of knowledge in that space. So, for example, mm. that, that chlamydia can be asymptomatic. Right. Um, and that you wouldn't know necessarily if you did have it. But you could then obviously pass, pass it, it on. on to yeah. someone else. Um, and I think as well there's a lot of fear and trepidation around accessing sexual health services. Yep. So we have young people who might be sexually active but might not be accessing STI screening um, and services like Shine mm. SA because they're worried about whether there's parental consent that yeah, might be required and yeah. a whole bunch of, of other concerns there that, that, that act as barriers to young people accessing these services and therefore being underrepresented in the sexual health care yeah, sector. of course. So, I mean, a, a big thing I'm hearing here is knowledge and education. Absolutely. They need to know about these things and they need to know that they're accessible. That's right. And there's no shame or guilt attaching attached to accessing those services. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. And what about one thing you talked about uh, when I heard you at the girls' school was about an increase in coerced or unwanted sex. Is that you said that's happening as well? Yeah. And, and, you know, a lot of the research looks at the correlation between that and access to online pornography. Yeah. Um, But we have seen increasing rates of coerced sexual activity and sexual assault for for more than the last 10 years, for the last 10 to 15 years. Um, And I often ask students about that and Mm. ask them, what do they think is going on? Yeah. What do they say? Uh, they say things like not having words or language. They say alcohol and other drugs. Um, and, uh, you know, perhaps feeling frightened. Yeah. Um, there's some different reasons there, but um, often it comes down to language and communication yeah. and capacity to be able to navigate and negotiate this stuff and an absence of, of education around consent. Mm. And that's what we tend to find. You know, when we do go into schools and say, you know, let's talk a bit about consent. Sometimes students might react with, oh, you know, yeah. we get it, boring. Well, it's We've been, done this. It's been in the news a lot. It so has. They've heard the word a yeah, lot. Yeah, they've heard the word a lot. You're right. But what does it actually mean or what do they think it means? That's right. And so mm. when I ask them to, say, get into small groups and really operationalise it, students have a lot of difficulty being able to articulate, I guess, how consent is truly practised mm-hmm. and what conditions can compromise it. Similarly, if we talk about coerced sexual activity, yeah. I think often the go-to response is, oh, well, it's spiking someone's drink or it's physically restraining someone. But we don't tend to have students who sit there and say, well, actually, 90, 95% of the time in, at high school, yeah. we're talking about psychological tactics. Of course. Yeah. Something uh, more subtle in a way. That's right. Mm. And so I think it's a really nuanced area that 
um, perhaps a lot of people think they understand because there's so much media commentary. Yeah. But that doesn't necessarily translate to effective education. Yeah, you're quite right, I think. Um, And Tessa, I was just wondering too, how does this play out in the difference between how it impacts boys and girls? Because, I mean, I'm sitting here listening to this, thinking about my daughters and how they're the ones that are probably more likely to be coerced than the boys. But, you know, it must be impacting our boys as well. So how how are young people feeling about sex and consent and... Yeah, that's a good question, and it's a really sensitive space. Mm. And I think a lot of adolescent males are sick of being made to feel like potential predators and perpetrators. Yeah, I'm sure, because most of them aren't. That's exactly right. And I think many of them are also terrified of being, um, you know, put up on sexual assault charges. Yeah. So I guess from that perspective, we have a pretty engaged audience because I do see young people, and this is what I love about the work we do, We see young people all the time who genuinely want to learn so much how to take care of each other when they're being intimate. Mm. Um, And I think that if you frame the conversation from a positive perspective and you talk about setting the bar high and aiming for ideal positive sexual experiences that are mutually consenting and mutually pleasurable, you change the whole paradigm for them. And it's no longer about avoiding sexual assault or avoiding STIs. It's about how do you have a great time and take really great care of each other. Yeah, well, that, well that, the thing I like about that is it's putting a positive spin on something which is meant to be a positive That's experience right. rather than terrifying young people of all the things that can go wrong. That's right. Yeah. Mm. And we lose them with that very sex-negative, risk-focused approach. Yeah. We lose them yeah. because for many of them, they know that it's not all bad. You know, they of might course. have their own experiences. So. I know. They need to know about those things, of course. Of course. But... It can't be just that, Agreed. can it? No. Yeah. No, it was interesting. After I heard you speak to um, at my daughter's school, a group of girlfriends and I were discussing your talk, and we all agreed that as young adults, we'd been in situations where we felt like we didn't possess those skills. Um, and, and to be honest, it was never discussed with us. Honestly, our sex education was abysmal when I, when I think back to it. So as a mother, I'm, I'm delighted that our kids are learning about this. So perhaps you can give us, um, as for us parents listening today, some tips on how we can converse with our children about consent and the kind of things they should be thinking about, perhaps questions they could be asking each other. Um, I think first, well, what I, I really think um, firstly I say to parents, if you can, become a sex-positive parent. Mm-hmm. And that simply means... Just start acknowledging that it's very, very likely that your child will grow up to be an independent, autonomous, sexually active adult. Yeah. There's a role that we can play to support that, Mm -hmm. to support a really healthy, what's called psychosexual development. So they have realistic values, expectations, decent, you know, attitudes towards, you know, gender equitable attitudes towards relationships and sexual activity. I think that's that's the first thing. Um, And I think that we're very good at, um, I guess, discussing many risks that our teenagers or adolescents face, whether it's binge drinking, whether it's drink driving, riding a motorbike without a helmet, whether it's recreational drug use or experimentation around illicit substances. Yet I would argue that sexual activity amongst adolescents is, is arguably more risky than all those things put together. And I think if we can firstly acknowledge that our children will likely become sexually active if they're not already... Secondly, 
we can also acknowledge that it's a perfectly natural and normal part yeah. of the human condition mm. and that it's not a shameful thing to be curious about or to want to express and explore. And so then thirdly, we've set up this space where we say, and you know, it it should be about mutual pleasure. Yeah. And we, we start to build skills within them or, or at, at the very least an acknowledgement within them that it's got to be mutual, yeah. that there has to be a sense of self-care, care for other mutuality reciprocity and this ongoing consent um because if that's not in the forefront of their minds they don't necessarily know how to or or what the benchmark is you know to to compare sexual partners to yeah so when i work with older students i give them a checklist of sexual readiness and, and i get them to in their minds um go through this checklist and work out if the answer is yes or no and the questions are like um can you look someone like do you, you know do you think you could look someone in the eye and talk about what you want to do sexually and what mm-hmm. you don't want to do um do you think you could look them in the eye and talk about what protection you'd use if that's applicable um there are other questions like are you just as concerned with the other person's pleasure as you are with your own are you just as concerned with the other person's safety as you are with your own and the list goes on but yeah. it ultimately kind of um ends in in Dan Savage's campsite rule that he coined and he says, for anyone who might be a sexually active citizen of this world, they have an ethical responsibility to always leave the other person in better condition than when they found them. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And the students really respond well to the simplicity mm. of that as well. Yeah. yeah. And so it's not moralising about you need to march down the aisle with the first person you're sexually <laughs> active with. It's whether you're with them for a night or for an entire lifetime or somewhere in between the two ends of that spectrum you have an ethical responsibility to always leave them in better condition than when you found them. Yeah, I really like that. And I can see how that would resonate with young people because, Mm. as you say, it's not moralising it. It's just, well, it's sort of saying it can be fun for both of you and it should be. It should be. And And you should both walk away from that interaction or activity with similar perceptions of how that unfolded Mm. rather than one person walking away going, that was all right, and the other person walking away saying, I was just enduring that and I couldn't wait for it to be over. Another thing that stands out from having those conversations with our young people is that for girls or and boys, but I'm thinking more of girls who are not ready um, to that if they have those skills, they will then be more likely to say no and That's not right. consent That's right. rather than feeling that peer pressure and you know everyone else is doing it, therefore I must. That's Mm. right. And that is what the evidence tells us. You know, the more we talk about this stuff, the more likely it is that our young people will delay their their sexual debut Mm. or they'll delay the age at which they become sexually active. But not only that, we know that young people who do receive information from home, from school about sexual negotiation and and refusal skills, they're less likely to be exposed to an incident of sexual violence, either as a perpetrator and or victim survivor. So, so that's it's so such important. Such a protective factor. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, that's great because obviously kids mature at different ages, and some kids will be ready at sixteen. Some will be ready at I don't know fourteen. Some, well, that's, I won't say that because that's illegal, isn't it? Well, it's true though. Is it's it? It's true. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And some probably wait till they're twenty and that's feel right. more confident. And time now for a quick interlude to let you know that recently I've launched a new website that you can find at www.vibrantlivespodcast.com. On my website, you'll find all my past podcast episodes and books that I review and recommend on the Amanda Recommends page. Plus, you can sign up to my upcoming newsletter while I'll keep you in the loop about interesting and important health and well-being information. 
So back to my conversation with Dr. Tessa Opie. I asked Tess, have you got some resources to recommend to parents to help us understand the issues facing our children around sex and sexuality, and also to give us some tips on how to have those often difficult conversations. Yes, absolutely. So I have a list of resources for parents and caregivers on my website, Mm -hmm. which is just inyourskin.co. There's um, some fabulous fact sheets there um, from It's Time We Talked, a website about how to talk to young people about pornography. Perfect. There's um, a great resource there from the Western Australian Department of uh, Health, perhaps, which is Talk Soon, Talk Often, and it's Mm -hmm. a guide for parents talking to their kids about sex. And there's another great um, resource on there from Planned Parenthood in America. Right. About, you know, discussing sex, puberty and relationships with your, with your kids. Oh, that's excellent. So I'll put links to that in the show notes. Tessa, thanks. That's been so informative and there's obviously a lot to digest. But as I said, I'll put links to everything in the show notes so parents can go away and have a look at all these fact sheets. And I have to say... Parents obviously have a role in this, but but so does educators and people like you, Tess, because some some conversations are probably a little bit awkward for parents to have. I think we can talk about consent um, and things like that, but you know, when it comes to more intimate things, maybe the school might be a better place. I'm not sure. <laughs> Tess, I like to wrap up with a few questions I ask all my guests. So, who inspires you? Yeah, I feel inspired by so many people, but mostly I feel inspired by people who are not afraid to be unpopular by fighting for a bigger cause. Oh, great. Yeah. Um, So I feel inspired by women like Clementine Ford. I Mm -hmm. feel inspired by women like Chanel Contos. Yeah. Yeah, I feel really inspired by people who aren't afraid to be unpopular for for the for a safer better world yeah fantastic and if you could recommend two things that people could do and they could be absolutely anything to improve their well-being what would they be so the first two things that pop into my mind number one is to not ignore their sexuality Mm -hmm. and i do think that we are in a very sex negative culture in many many ways um, even though it's sexually explicit, I think it's also yeah very very sex negative, and there's still a lot of shame and taboo there, particularly for our generation yeah and beyond. Um, and so I think that you know we should be giving it as much attention and thought and consideration as we give all other aspects of our character. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think my other my other kind of tidbit would be to really focus on investing in the relationships, including friendships that really make you feel good. Yeah, great advice. Yeah, and I think that all too often we have a sense of obligation perhaps to relationships that don't necessarily make us feel happier or stronger or better or more robust Mm -hmm. or um, more interesting. Or Yeah, so I think that life is short and and we have to kind of really invest in the good ones. Yeah, that's great. One of my friends said at her 40th, and I'll never forget it, she said, you don't need a lot of friends, you just need good ones. That's right. That's so true. That's right. So can you tell us then where we can find you and what's the best place to look at what you're doing? Um, You can find me at www.inyourskin.co and you can contact me through the website. And as I said, there's, there's a lot of resources there as well. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for your time today and your valuable advice. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And that was Dr. Tessa Opie, founder and director of In Your Skin. As you would have heard, I decided not to cut out my blooper about different ages that some young adults feel that they're they're ready to become sexually active. 
And for clarity, in the state of South Australia, the age of consent is 17. However, in a situation where an older person is in a position of power or authority over a younger person, such as a teacher or a sports coach, for example, then the age of consent is 18. I'll attach a link to a fact sheet put out by the Legal Services Commission of South Australia, which details this information, and it's called Sex and Consent. Thank you for listening today. I hope you found my interview with Dr Tess Opie informative and helpful. As a society, we clearly need to be better at teaching our children about sex, sexuality, consent and respectful relationships. So speaking as a parent, I am very grateful for the work that Tess does at In Your Skin. So please share this episode with friends and especially with other parents. And if you could take a minute to leave a rating of my podcast on Apple Podcasts, it'll help other people find my podcast and I'm always really grateful for this. So you can subscribe to Vibrant Lives Podcast on all good podcast providers like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spreaker, Spotify and iHeartRadio and you can also subscribe on YouTube. Please follow me on Instagram at Vibrant underscore Lives underscore podcast and on Facebook at Vibrant Lives Podcast. Feel free to DM me or contact me via my website if you would like to make any suggestions or simply would like to say hi. That would be nice. Thank you so much for tuning in. Eat well, move well, think well.